one of the things I really want to explore is just this connection between soil health, food, nutrition, human health and benefit, and not only the nutritional aspects of it, but also the environmental aspects and the societal penalties or, or benefits to it as well. This is On the Climate Record. I'm your host, Christoph Jospe. This podcast is to amplify ideas, the people working on them, and practical solutions to solving climate change. Hello and welcome to On the Climate Record. My name is Christoph Jospe and I'm very pleased to have a guest on with me today who I think he has a lot of battle scars and strong opinions and passion about doing things that we care deeply about on this podcast. So this will be fun to get into. So without further ado, very pleased to welcome Todd Taylor, professor of practice at Arizona State University in the Thunderbird School. Todd, welcome. Hey, thanks, Christoph. So good to be with you. Yeah, thank you. So maybe we could get started about with your story and your relationship to the supply side of business. Yeah, great. I come out of industry, so I spent many years working for Hewlett-Packard and for IBM and had my own consultancy for a while. You know, I started at Hewlett-Packard back in the 90s and in the early days of their efforts to capture uh, information about a carbon footprint, about our environmental compliance, about sustainability. There's a co-worker there named Judy Glazer, who's a really great lady who really pioneered a lot of work in the sustainability space and the environmental compliance space, really. And in the early days, you know, we did that with uh, supplier sustainability audits and scorecards and things. And that's really the path that most companies, enterprises have taken for the past 20 or 30 years is really, hey, let's go do some audits or let's have a third party go do some audits with our suppliers to see what kind of practices they have. And those audits are usually a sampling of the suppliers, right? If if Hewlett-Packard had 10,000 suppliers, they would audit a handful, maybe, you know, maybe a half dozen or a dozen at a time. And and based upon that, they'd get their seal of environmental compliance approval or some kind of standing, right, based upon that small, small audit. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time in the supply chain space, but, you know, one of my frustrations on the whole, on the environmental side and the sustainability side of things, especially upstream in the supply base is, is boy, can we ever get to a point where we can legitimately measure and monitor and assess in quantitative terms a supplier's carbon footprint or a supplier's impact of their products on the on the environment on health on 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 the planet and on the world so and that's that i think is still a challenge but i do think we have some tools and technologies coming that that make that quantification more and more feasible and more and more visible and transparent and so i'm i'm real excited about that and and over the past you know, 30 years, I've spent time doing a lot of supply chain consulting and transformation work and technology work. I uh, teach uh, supply chain and global operations at ASU and the Thunderbird School of Global Management and really have an enjoyable time doing that and teaching classes on 
data and analytics. And I taught one of the first blockchain classes in the world back in 2016 and was exposed to blockchain really through my days at IBM, where I was working, leading their high-tech electronics team and global supply chain practice in greater China. This is back 2012 timeframe. So like many of you, you know, I, I heard and knew of Bitcoin when it was at 20 cents and didn't buy as much as I should have and sold it too soon. But, but nonetheless, um, we are where we are. And yeah, I really enjoy the, I really enjoy developing on some of these new technology platforms and seeing what is possible with some of these new platforms. And uh, yeah, happy to talk about also how, how I think it can impact our global supply chains and sustainability and environmental responsibility. Awesome. This is going to be a fun conversation. Thanks for that background. This is what I love about supply chains. They matter. They're the most important part of a business. If you can't get your good made and then sold, you're going to lose your job or just not be in business. And yeah. it ultimately goes into big questions around procurement principles and like how you get something from cradle to grave in a way that is still going to drive business and make money. And it's, it's kind of like what matters most to a business. That's a comment. The other comment is sustainability doesn't, I mean, they, businesses say it matter, but it doesn't always matter to the business. It's often the first budget line item budget to get lost in constrained times. And it's not necessarily always integrated with core business decision in the way that the supply chain is. And so I just want to say what I love about what you're doing is you're pulling in this idea of we must manage the way we produce goods and services more sustainably and make that integral to these business decisions. And pulling it into supply chain means like you're not really giving people a choice. You're saying these supply chain will transform. And I think that's a kind of like underhyped horse in this race. So I just want to applaud you for being part of that horse, which brings me to my question, the audit. You mentioned audit. Yeah. Philosophically, I'm curious what purpose the audit serves and in an ideal world, what an audit could be doing to not just be a box to tick to get you, you know, your certification or your gold star, but to actually be something that is lockstep with improving the business while also improving sustainability. Yeah, and I think, I mean, maybe my opinion goes to your previous comment um, a little bit, which I, I do think enterprises care about environmental compliance and being, you know, friendly to the communities and the environments where they work and where they operate and where they have, you know, manufacturing and other things occurring. But I think what happens or what has happened over the past many decades is that these environmental audits or these sustainability audits have have yes been you know filled with good intentions but but they've just been inadequate right i mean if you i i did a little investigation into starbucks environmental compliance report and they have a they hire a company called conservatory international once every few years to go out and audit their supply base and when they go out they go out and they look for proper netting so that birds aren't being birds aren't picking through the fruits or the the beans on the trees right and and they're not the birds aren't being trapped in the netting they're looking also at financial flow 
you know, is the money that Starbucks is paying making it through the co-op to the to the farmer? You know, what kind of practices is the farmer applying to the growing of the of the beans? So so they do it. This Conservatory International does a decent job, I think, looking at the the farmer and getting all the way down into the supply chain. But they really only look at a handful of farmers. And I mean, how many of those beans come from those farmers that they're auditing? Uh, Starbucks doesn't really know to a large degree. But nonetheless, they what do they stamp on their cup? You know, on the on the Starbucks cup is a little label that says. What ninety nine percent environmentally compliant coffee beans have been used in this cup of coffee that you're drinking, right? They have no idea that that is true, but it's kind of like it makes everybody feel good that that they've put some effort into it. And yes, it's it's meaningful and it's well intended, but at the same time, it man, I don't know. The, does surveying a handful of suppliers once every three years through a third party who you're paying to give you a good, you know, a good mark on your audit. Does that, is that acceptable for environmental complaint? No, I don't think so. So, yeah, I mean, I think there are, there are good intentions, but oh boy, we fall, we fall so short of, of where we, where we could be and where we can be and where we need to be in order for, the full cost of the product to be baked into and borne by the by the respective parties of of the of the product manufacturing process. Yeah, well said. And it's it's always nice to you know draw two circles that overlap. In one, you write real, and then the other, you write ideal. And yeah. so, for yeah. me, when it when it comes to auditing, of course, it doesn't work this way. But my ideal would be. You're not doing this just to show that you've checked a box or met some standard, but you're auditing because it's informing your business operations to more strategically capture value in service of true cost accounting, which is embedding, you know, yeah. the pollution yeah. that goes into how we produce goods and services. And right. and you so you have this valuable information. You don't have this like anxiety of like, oh crap, the auditor is coming and he's gonna, you know, find out I've been doing something wrong because like you point out, they're just doing a random sampling of a sample size that's maybe 10 or 20% of the whole chain. And businesses need to better understand where, where they can drive those performances. And I, it sort of sets up our next topic to go into, where there is both promise and peril and hype and underhype and all of it, which is this word called the blockchain. So what what is the blockchain? How does the blockchain relate to these kind of questions in the supply chain? And then maybe actually more broadly, we should probably define what is a blockchain first. Well, I mean, I think people have heard a number of blockchain definitions over the past few years because of you know my experience and where I come from. When I was introduced to blockchain back in 2012 timeframe at IBM, I, like many of you, I was introduced to it as, hey, look at Bitcoin and look at this white paper and Who's Satoshi Nakamoto, and you know what is this going on? And we've just come out of this banking crisis. You know, can we get by without banks with the digital currency? Wouldn't that be cool, right? So I came at it and learned about it like many many others. But because I'm a supply chain guy and have spent a big portion of my career working on standards and protocols for communications and technologies that exists between suppliers and companies and OEMs, 
you know, I spent a lot of time working in high tech. You know, HP's got thousands of suppliers and those tier one suppliers have thousands of suppliers and those suppliers have thousands of suppliers. So you've got these massive networks of suppliers and and one of the big costs of doing business is just simply in the in the transfer of information from one company to the next, right? And and you know, I've worked a lot of my career on XML standards and EDI standards and other kinds of protocols for how just we we do business. How do we send purchase orders? How do we send invoices? How do we send payment? How do we just do the basic blocking and tackling of 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 business in large value chains. And so when I was exposed to Bitcoin and blockchain and started to learn a little bit more about it, the light that quickly came on for me was, oh my goodness, these distributed compute environments provide us with a platform for developing software now at an ecosystem level. So instead of developing software for specific companies, which is what we've done forever, and for specific purposes and specific processes with a single company usually in mind. Now what we have is a framework, a data framework, a security framework, a process framework, an identity framework for developing software applications now at an ecosystem level. And that for me, that's what blockchain is. So we've got these different platforms, both public and private, that allow us now to capture, you know, that's why I was so excited when I learned about Ethereum, you know, okay, there was the Bitcoin stuff, but now Ethereum introduces Solidity, introduces a development platform, introduces applications, starts to introduce, and then you get, you know, IBM introducing Hyperledger, and we get into, you know, all of the, the private kind of blockchain distributed ledger capabilities. And now you're starting to see really application development happening at this ecosystem level across using a variety of blockchain platforms. And for me, it's super exciting because yes, there's still the challenge of how do you get an ecosystem to participate on a platform, but at least now we've got kind of the, the primary technology elements to share data broadly to raise the level of security, which is more and more important as we enter these quantum quantum compute days, have a concept of identity for an, a, a digital identity for an ecosystem, for a company, for an individual, for a product, and then to capture all the process flows through through that value chain or through that ecosystem. So, boy, once you understand that and start to wrap your head around that, then the potential applications start to go, you know, you start to go crazy and multiply in your mind. And, and that's what's really got me excited about blockchain, even though we're still in the early days and we're still trying to figure out things and and crypto and digital currency have kind of taken center stage to a large degree. If people can just back up a little bit and appreciate the technology for what it is and how it enhances other technologies, then then wow, you you start to see there's some real potential and possibility here that needs that deserves further development and investigation and application. Thanks for that. So just to weave together what I understand you're saying is Blockchains were driven by Bitcoin initially, like out of Satoshi Nakamoto. And I actually really enjoyed a Netflix documentary. We can put it in the show notes called Banking on Bitcoin. Mm. It kind of tracks the early days. But really the power of what blockchain is about is the network 
that is enabling distributed and trusted data packets to flow around and amongst between each other, whether this is through private or public infrastructure, and it's constantly being developed. It kind of reminds me of the, someone who wasn't that familiar with Bitcoin, who's like, who's Bitcoin CEO? And it's like, that's the beauty. There is no CEO. Sure, there are applications <laughs> built around Bitcoin where this currency can be exchanged and trade. But, you know, I, I'm skeptical and I'm a co-founder of a blockchain-backed company and I've drunk the Kool-Aid. But I also, I respect and admire scientists like Dr. Jonathan Foley of Project Drawdown, who, to paraphrase one of his tweets, to say one of the best things blockchain can do for the climate is to stop existing. What do you say <laughs> to people like him? I think they, you know, they come at it from the bias of, oh my goodness, now if we're developing applications, kind of distributed, you know, ecosystem level applications. And, and again, I would just reiterate, you know, don't, don't just think of blockchain as a transaction platform, but think of it really as an application development platform with, yes, there is a digital currency uh, portion to it and a transaction capability enabled by it. But think of it as also the processes that would that need to exist amongst partners in order to produce a product or deliver a service. That's a really important aspect to the, the suite of blockchain functionality. So, yeah, when Dr. Foley makes statements um, like that, he's really looking at, hey, look at Bitcoin, look at the mining, look at the expense associated with transaction processing in the Bitcoin ecosystem. And I I agree with him you know whole, wholeheartedly and 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 a lot of the Bitcoin mining is wrapped up into a couple of big conglomerates and and I'm not bullish on on Bitcoin as a as a you know as a as a replacement for gold or for anything a store of value I'm not bullish on on Bitcoin at all I am bullish on Ethereum and I'm bullish on some of the other distributed ledger development platforms and capabilities that capture that this this idea of of process flow and that go away from kind of proof of work um consensus mechanisms which are very slow and cumbersome i mean they they get to what they were trying to accomplish with bitcoin and with that proof of concept but some of the proof of stake proof of authority mechanisms i think and there are others you know that are being do, introduced by hedera and by others that out there that are really exciting that you know, raise the level of transaction volume and capability and dramatically reduce the compute intensive nature of that transaction processing. So yeah, I'm really bullish on, on a lot of these technology elements. Bitcoin and proof of work is not one of those. And that's where Dr. Foley's statement is directed. Yeah, definitely. And just to put things in greater context, consensus mechanisms are basically ways for nodes of a network to validate that whatever data are being stored on this immutable ledger, which is a blockchain, are true. And proof of work is an energy intense process where you're basically mining and solving kind of useless math problems that get harder and harder and having other nodes validate that you as a node were the first one to get that math problem right. Whereas proof of stake is a way to share amongst stakeholders who are owners of a certain currency to basically bet 
on the accuracy of the ledger with their currency. And of course, proof of authority starts getting into more private blockchains where nodes can be pre-selected by bodies who have a use for a dis yeah. um, distributed ledger amongst each other. But let's let's get practical here. Let's get some concrete examples. You actually were a founder of a blockchain company called HealthLock. Yeah. What is HealthLock and how does how do they use the blockchain? Well, I mean, when I left IBM and started teaching at ASU, I, we, we founded a blockchain research lab at ASU, which was cross-department and uh, cross-functional in nature. And it's kind of limped along with varying degrees of success and, and project uh, engagements that have, been, that have been good and good learning. But we, I also started a, a development company called GenBlock, and that has spawned a number of different projects. One of the first projects we worked on was a project for IBM around conflict minerals, track and trace. You know, these blockchain applications just kind of lend themselves to, because of the asset identity and then the process information that you're able to capture against a digital asset, you're able to see who's doing what to that asset, what value they're adding to that asset as it's flowing through the supply chain. And you're able to capture that information on a on an immutable ledger. And that transparency and visibility is really great. And so from a conflict mineral standpoint, you know, and we're talking about these three three TG materials plus some others that typically come out of the Congo or places that, you know, might be funding warlording type efforts in 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 different regions of the world. IBM was serious about understanding where some of the raw materials were coming from and and we were able to dig into that. That led to a project with GlaxoSmithKline and Pfizer around a vaccine track and trace. A very similar project in nature where we captured information from the entire supply chain and where the vaccine was, you know, where the active ingredients were coming from, who were producing those active ingredients, where they were being refined and, and combined into what eventually was this AIDS vaccine that GSK and Pfizer jointly produced. And we were able to track those vaccines all the way down to the clinicians who were administering the, the AIDS cocktail to their, you know, their different patients. And then to get information, experiential information flowing back up the supply chain was one of the great uh, results of that project. That project led to some investigations with food products and with nutraceutical products. And there was this whole CBD kind of uh, time that that ramped up and people were really interested in and regulators were really interested in kind of getting eyes on where these CBD products were coming from and what the levels of THC were in these CBD products. So we we actually jumped into some pilots with some companies who were producing CBD oils and things like that to track and trace those. And, and that was kind of the genesis of this health lock, whose focus really is on the genesis of food products, nutraceutical, pharmaceutical uh, products. You know, can we track provenance information about those about those products and make those available to the consumer with the scan of a QR code? So we do microsites associated with the QR code on each package, and it's and that QR code is lot batch specific. So from the scan of the QR code from your phone, you can get this complete genealogy of where all of the ingredients have come from on that product. And, and that's a real differentiator for many 
companies who want to showcase where their products have come from. Uh, the, the reality is many companies that we've worked with don't want to showcase where many of their ingredients are coming from because guess what? They come from China and they come from other places and and the yeah you know, they're they're a little suspect in terms of oh boy what's actually in this compound that I've purchased from this supplier they're a little hesitant to admit it or to show it even though they've got some confidence in it and obviously they're getting a good price for it as they're buying it from some of these Chinese suppliers or Indonesian suppliers but yeah many many don't want to showcase where their stuff's coming from but that's the essence of HealthLock as a company. And it's been really a great learning experience because that track and trace or genealogy functionality just falls out naturally from these blockchain platforms. I love it. I mean, it's it's totally, it, it's in line with what we put in our bodies affects our health in some way. And we don't really know, but the way in which those things are produced and processed has yep. profound scientific impacts. and. I don't know, just a couple of comments. I couldn't help but kind of laugh when you talked about made in China. I actually lived in Cairo, Egypt for two years. And one of the many kind of hilarious observations is made in China in Cairo is a seal of approval. Like if you can get a Chinese made good, That's you're, you're awesome. Like good for you. That's like yeah. Super legit. But just to go back to CBD and Todd, sorry, I'm a stickler for acronyms. So that's the I believe cannabidiol. Cannabidiol, yeah. Cannabidiol, cannabidiol, mm -hmm. the CBD. I mean, this, right, we're talking about a kind of active, active ingredient from cannabis or hemp, and it has huge health impacts. And I actually have a friend who extracts CBD through certain processes, and I'm in a region that experienced a CBD or hemp boom and bust because people thought CBD would be a huge market. I think one of the issues core to it was there was a huge variety across the quality of CBD that not all CBD is created equal or has the same health yeah, impacts. Yeah. So you kind of honed in on a key, okay, how can we answer something so that you know what you're getting isn't snake oil and you can link back to these various elements. That's right. Do consumers care? I think more and more they do. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you'll, you'll run up to some people who don't care what they're ingesting in their body and they you know, they eat at McDonald's and they do other things. They could care less. It's the same people. You know, when when we lived in China, you know, there was the there was all this stuff happening around the the wet markets and around the recycled vegetable oil that was being caught in traps and then somehow filtered and reused and and really nasty stuff. And some people just don't care. They just go eat there anyway. They don't, they don't care. And and there, you're always going to have people like that, but there's a growing number of us that actually do care about what we're ingesting into our bodies. And we understand that there's a link between the things that we eat and how we feel and our our, our overall, overall health and well-being for ourselves and for those that 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 we have that we care for in our families. So, yes, we we there is an increasing awareness and need to know. And, and for many people, they, they do want to know and they want to make it, they, they want to know quickly, they want to know on the spot. So how do we make it, how do we make that information readily available is, is what HealthLock is about. And, and as we think about HealthLock and the future of HealthLock, not only is there this, you know, functionality of you know, where does the product coming from, but then, as I mentioned, from the GSK Pfizer project, you know, can we get 
experiential information from consumers flowing back up the supply chain. So can we drive that connection between the product from a specific lot and batch to a consumer? And now if you can make that connection, now you can get information flowing bi-directionally about somebody's experience with a specific product coming from specific ingredients through a specific date and manufacturing process, right? So for recall and for just, hey, what's providing what ingredients, what compounds, what suppliers, what sources are providing the best results for my consume, for my customers. Now, all of a sudden, that information starts to become more and more available. And as we circle back to the environmental sustainability topic, now also, guess what? Not only are we able to start to quantify and provide information about who is providing what that rolls up into a product, but now we're also able to connect that to a consumer and involve that consumer in the circular economy um, equation. So not only can the consumer understand, okay, who has provided the plastic that's going into this plastic bottle or the glass that's going into this glass vial, but hey, can I also take some responsibility to properly recycle that glass bottle or to properly recycle that, uh, that plastic carton or that plastic container? Can we start to involve the consumer in the, in the equation so that all parties across from consumer all the way up through the, the packaging and the, the active ingredient providers, can everybody be, you know, can everybody hold themselves responsible for properly, you know, taking a, taking responsibility for for what they're producing and and how they're disposing of the things that they're consuming. Does that make Great sense? Answer. It <laughs> it does. And thanks for walking me back from my cynicism, so I have freedom to be cynical <laughs> about other things. No, through this we podcast. I mean, yeah, I guess. No, we should, you know, we I mean, just a funny story. I was in Whole Foods the other day and didn't buy it, but saw that it was available for purchase, gluten-free water. And I was like, huh, I didn't know that there was water with gluten in it. Why is this on the label? And I, of course, there's no gluten in any water. The only reasonable conclusion I could come to was it was marketing because there's consumers out there who think gluten-free everything is really important and valuable. And so that's part of where I think consumers don't know what they want. On top of that, we have an industry that, or a government, theoretically, ostensibly is there to ensure the safety and efficacy of the products and things that we put in. You know, that's what the Food and Drug Administration hopefully is there to do. And then cynically, well, the incumbent powers have found their way to get into the Food and Drug Administration in ways that are legitimized by them. And yet at the same time, there are other ways of producing things that we put in our body or wear that might seem anathema to the FDA, but actually are way better for us. So it's just, it's kind of one of my personal hopes with blockchain as a distributed economy is that it can cut through some of the various intermediaries and produce the data that's relevant for doing accurate science to tell the story in some meaningful way. And I think what it kind of all comes down to, and to draw the link back to the sustainability side with health lock, is on some level, we're going to have to be moving packets of data around. And those packets of data are going to tell us something. Now, of course, the ontologies of how that data gets created and the way that our architecture is built is very much a wild west and an exciting space for anyone listening and trying to think what 
direction they want to take their career in. But ideally, it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's packets moving around and they're resulting in some outcome that's reported on against which a price might be created or changed or a new market instrument, all of this. And so these same things have to do with carbon sequestration packets yeah, yeah. of data get moved around. And this is another topic of interest that you've thought a lot about. So can you maybe connect the dots a little bit for us for how you link in carbon sequestration make measurement to this kind of network opportunity yeah. that you see emerging with the blockchain? Well, I think you know one of the one of the fundamental principles of these blockchain platforms that has us all really excited is that when you're exchanging information on a blockchain platform about a digital asset and that exchange or those information contributions are captured in an immutable record, now there's an unchangeable record there available for all to see. So, you know, if you've produced something falsely, yeah, and, and then there's also this principle of segregation. So when there's a sender, there's also a receiver. And even though e there's not a validator that's sitting between the two parties who are sending and receiving information in a distributed ecosystem, there is a sender and there is a receiver. So there's some level of validation that occurs, right? So for instance, in this, let's use the CBD example. And if you go to HealthLock, you know, com. you can kind of tr follow this in terms of the, the, the product history, but you know, there's a, there's a hemp grower that is producing bales of hemp flowers that then go to an extraction facility that extracts the oil out of the hemp plant for then further refinement and for use in, in a variety of products. Right. So there's a, hemp grower, and then there's an extraction facility, that extraction facility is doing some level of quality assurance against the hemp that they're receiving. So the farmer has sent this bale of hemp, and they've said it's this, and the, the extraction facility is receiving it, and they're saying, yes, we've received this. All that information is being published and, and captured on the immutable ledger. And if there's a problem, you know, eventually occurring with that bale of hemp or that you know extraction facility for that uh, lot or batch of oil then we can go back and see okay who said what about this and who who did what around this so there's a there's a path for dispute remediation and and to hold the right parties accountable so that's one of the big powerful things i think about these distributed blockchain platforms across supply chains and value chains is that principle of of segregation of information and yes there's a sender and receiver and an immutable record that's capturing what the sender is sending what the receiver is receiving and what they've both said about what was sent and what was received so that's that's a big deal and then and then how does this all tie to maybe you know a carbon carbon footprint well, you know, one of the problems that we've had in the carbon space really is just how in the world, it's, it's similar to the, the sustainability space, right? How do we stick a quantified measurement on carbon emissions or carbon sequestered, right? Because we know that, you know, plants use carbon in just natural photosynthesis processes, but the soil can only hold so much carbon and then when you till and when you do other things, it releases carbon right up into the atmosphere again. So, you know, traditional row crop uh, farming isn't, isn't the answer. So as we compensate row crop farming for carbon sequestered across a big field of corn, 
that gets tilled under every year and the land left exposed every year for many months during the year, well, boy, well, we're probably overestimating the amount of, uh, of carbon credits or whatever we might be passing along to that, to that farmer. And by the way, the insecticides and the pesticides that they're, do, that they're using and the way they're using water is probably not nearly as efficient or effective as it should be. And the pesticides, insecticides are causing a lot of damage as well, not only to personal health and nutrition, but also to the, to the planet and to the soil. And, and we've got a real problem from a soil health standpoint. And guess what? There's a linkage between the health of the soil and the health of the, and the nutrition of the food that that soil is producing. And there's a link between this nutrition of the food and the people who consume it and the nutrition of the person and the health and well-being of the consumer. So there is an inextric inextricable link between soil health and the practices that are employed in the growing of produce and products that we consume in that soil. There's all kinds of you know, problems with the, in, the mechanized and industrialized food production systems that we've created over the past hundred years or so. And it's, it's really causing an enormous problem. And, and this carbon measurement challenge is, is kind of in the middle of this. I don't know that it's necessarily fundamental or, or right at the core, but it is something that we're trying to kind of put a finger on to see if, boy, can we use carbon as a measure for how responsibly people are acting with, with, with growing practices or with you know, operations. But I really think what we need to get to is accurate measures of soil health and, and carbon plays a role here, right? How much carbon can be sequestered by a given plot of land and we can do some soil sampling things, and we can also do some, some vegetation analysis based upon satellite or flux tower data. But how do we begin to extend that measurement capability across broad, expansive areas of, of fields and, and land and put carbon measurement or soil health measurement against that land is really the challenge that we're trying to address so that you know farmers who are producing products that you know in fields that have been you know lightly tilled or no tilled and you know completely organic you know natural process for the production of the food no pesticides used no insecticides used they're not spraying it broadly with roundup they're not you know they're not tilling so they're not losing all this you know topsoil to soil erosion when rains and floods come but that they're capturing and holding water on the on the plot of land that kind of land lends itself to a much greater degree of carbon sequestration so we've got to get to this good quantified measure of soil health and carbon sequestration and carbon emissions such that we can then fairly compensate or charge those involved in these food production systems with the appropriate amounts, you know, corresponding amounts of, of money or penalty for what they're doing. And we're a long ways from that today. But you know, one of the things that we've started to develop at ASU and Thunderbird through a series of grant proposals and, and research efforts has been, hey, we've got this platform now in place where we can capture 
information in an immutable ledger. And we've got AI systems in place such that we can take a soil sample from a given plot of land and we can marry that up to satellite information or flux tower information or even you know, sensors on tractors and, and plows and other things. And we can begin to use all of that information to create a fabric of data associated with the health of the soil from a given plot of land. And the AI can actually take and begin to extend that just using the satellite imagery on the vegetation being grown on the land can begin to extend that validated with soil samples across larger expansive areas, but can begin to extend that across broad expansive areas of land, which is really, really promising because now we've got quantified soil health across a broad expansive plot of land and now we can start to compensate those who own the land or those who farm the land appropriately based upon those quantified measurements. Well, I don't know how to respond, Todd, whether at the beginning <laughs> I of, threw a lot at you. Well, you fired some serious shots, and I sort of want to come to defense from some of those who you fired shots at. And then simultaneously, you laid out a strategy that I am camping at the bit to poke holes into, and maybe I'll do both of those. No, please. Uh, <laughs> no, I, but I, I think I'm going to start with a, with a question first. It, it, it's, so, you know, you're, you're saying 95 plus percent of how farmland is happening right now is happening totally in the wrong way from your perspective. Yeah. What led you to that conclusion? Well, I think the, the, and, and I think we're still early days, right? So when I say that, Hey, this, this, this ear of corn that was row crop farmed or this uh, soybean that was row crop farmed with pesticides and insecticides and Roundup and whatever else, right, is, you know, has this nutrition profile versus this ear of corn that was grown organically without any pesticides or insecticides and with all, you know, without any tillage in somebody's backyard. You know, here's the different nutrition profiles. You know, I'm not a plant biologist. I'm not a, I, I, I don't know the the different profiles. I've seen some studies that have been done between uh, those nutrition profiles, and they look substantial. But that's another you know piece that we need to fold into the equation. But but yeah, I mean there 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 still is a lot to to dig into and a lot to learn. But I guess at a fundamental level, what I keep coming back to is we can improve what we're not what we can't measure. So if we can at least get a measurement capability in place then that's a great place to start. Sure, so can we at least start to put can a... Can I throw a monkey wrench on you? Yeah, yeah, please. Maybe I'll throw a bunch at once. Monkey wrench number mm. one. You've got a farmer who is planting cover crops and yeah. not tilling. And the only way they're able to do that effectively is through using Roundup. And you compare that to a farmer who is tilling, not using Roundup. These are real examples, real things coming through. And so it's there is yeah, a yeah, right yeah. rate, right time, right place, all of these various factors of applying fertilizer as well. It's more nuanced and complex. Scenario two, a drought hits. Your farmers who are planting cover crops lose their entire cover crop. And the carbon across your measurement-based empirical systems goes down, not for any reason or any fault of anyone's. 
it's but it does. The weather. The weather actually is 30 to 70% responsible for why carbon goes up or down on any given region. And yeah, oftentimes, systems that are trying to integrate with artificial intelligence, which, by the way, I am all in on new models that are collecting farm level operating data and integrating from remote sensing and on the ground measurement that's collecting empirical evidence to have better projections of what to do and using that to reward or measure outcomes. But it hasn't reconciled this fact that carbon is going to be going up and down based on no practices, nor practices that can't be controlled, nor has it reconciled the like context and sort of longitudinal importance of studying this. And I, sorry if you're really big into AI and coming into this space, but we're not in a place where we can be running AI. We're in a place where we, as a world, need to be figuring out how to characterize and calibrate the input data, such as we understand what these algorithms are actually doing. Because if yeah. not, where will we be? We'll be in a place where there's choose your five favorite proprietary AI-based models AI. that are all spitting mm -hmm. out some with no ability for the scientific or public community to actually assess or trust or understand these standards. So for me, actually more important to all of this is the characterizing the data, is the time stamp series of collecting data, whether we're talking about eddy covariance flux towers or actual like farm level operating data, yeah. but is collecting exactly. it over time such that you can understand it. And here's just, I mean, this is a bit wishful thinking because it doesn't work this way, but I want to throw it out there that I think the future of this is open source and transparent. And I agree with you. Must be. And kind of short of that, it's the like black box proprietary plays, which we're seeing across agriculture, will not be able to compete with the efforts that have like common ontologies, common codes, common ways to standardize the measurement and characteristics that are being and attributes that are being assigned to certain boundary conditions that spit out a greenhouse gas footprint. So yeah. I don't know. I did want to pour a bit of cold water, but I'm super stoked by that research that ASU is doing. Yeah, no, and I think, you know, all your concerns are completely legitimate and well-founded, right? So there, there's all kinds of growing practices that, that occur and that happen, and people are slapping organic labels on, on products for all kinds of different reasons and all kinds of different... <clears throat> growing growing situations and weather does affect as you mentioned all kinds of things affect i i am really encouraged about the availability of satellite data nasa data jetty data flux tower data i love the con you know the open source concept is something that i certainly embrace i started a company open source in nature uh, years and years ago that uh, that my brother still runs but yeah the the open source nature of the of the ai does need to does need to continue but i'm really i think there's a lot of promise in the the deep learning capabilities that can be applied to extend soil health measurement and and to do this in in a real time way Right. So like you say, with the timestamp being occurring, but hey, we've taken a timestamp of this satellite uh, image on this date for this plot of land. It's, you know, and here's the guts behind the algorithm that we're using for the for the deep learning and for this extended calculation. I do think that sits well in an open source situation. And I I, I like that ASU and other universities are, are doing this with an eye on that, on having it open 
and available and, uh, and transparent. And the blockchain guts and foundation add to, you know, add to the transparency of the data feeds and the calculations coming out, uh, coming out of the, the platform and the, the algorithms being used. Indeed. So you've clearly got a wealth of experience, a lot of ideas, a lot of questions that you want to more deeply explore. And in preparation for this podcast, you told me you plan on going back to complete a PhD in diving into some of these deeper inquiries that drive you. What do you hope to be doing in the dissertation with your dissertation? Well, and I don't know that it will actually result in me attending or going through a PhD program, but there are, you know, there are, there are some people out there who I think, you know, my thoughts kind of align to, or my research interest align to ASU has a great program around agribusiness. Yale has a really uh, small program, but a great program. Many others have programs that focus in this, in this area. But what my interest is really is, okay, we're just coming off out of this, I don't know, we're still in the middle, I guess, of this COVID challenge, but it exposed very quickly how brittle our food supply chains and many of our product supply chains are, pharmaceutical supply chains, et cetera. What, one of the things I really want to explore is just this connection between soil health, food, nutrition, human health and benefit, and not only the nutritional aspects of it, but also the environmental aspects and the societal penalties or, or benefits to it as well. You know, as we've come through the last hundred years and created these industrialized food supply chains and these massive companies that are now involved in the production of the of the food that we eat on a daily basis and the products that we consume, what is the impact to our nutrition, to our air, water, soil, and to the quality of and to the nutrition of the the individual, the health and well-being of the individual consumer. I want to explore that in more detail and add some quantitative measurements to that in, in a scientific way such that you know, we're not just talking about it theoretically, but we're adding some, you know, we're adding some real, some real data against it. And then, okay, based upon those findings, what can we do? You know, what changes can we make? What can we encourage? You know, are, are we putting the right incentives from a USDA standpoint, from a, you know, farmer, you know, uh, government incentive standpoint? Are we, are we putting incentives in the right places to to encourage the right activity and the right things that are going to most benefit society? Yeah, that's what I'm excited to to continue to explore and 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 I you know my technology and supply chain background kind of lend itself to that and I'm I'm a bit of a farmer in my previous life I think I might have been a, a farmer but yeah at least my ancestors were farmers so I guess it comes up through my through my genetics anyway. And, and I'm really excited about, about seeing some of the data resulting from, from some of this analysis, whether it be through a PhD program or just my own research, we'll see how it unfolds. Totally. Yeah. You can call it the PhD of the hard knocks, which is just doing <laughs> things that produces scientifically robust data that enables others. That's I mean, right. I, I commend you, Todd. This is such a worthy and important link to explore and to draw connections to. 
And clearly, a lot of thought has gone into why we need to be answering these questions at this time. And if you're listening and you've thought about these questions, please reach out to Todd and have a conversation with him, because I'm sure he'd be delighted to chat with you. But well, likewise, Christoph, you've done some great work and, and you know, really put forth some effort in the, in the space for all the right reasons. And certainly commend you and, and all your listeners who are putting forth you know, selfless effort in this, in this space to the, to the benefit of those around them and those to come. So really appreciate all the, all the good efforts here. Thanks, Todd. So what advice would you give to anyone who's trying to maybe redouble their efforts on putting their energy toward driving sustainable outcomes? Boy, plant a garden, a stick a garden in your backyard and start growing some of your own food for yourself and for your family and for your neighbors and show them how easy it is. The earth is an amazing thing, is an amazing organism and the spontaneous generation of, of food and multiplication factor of food is just mind boggling. And, and the way the earth can produce is just incredible. So I'm super, even though we get down sometimes on all the bad practices that we see, boy, the earth is so resilient and is just amazing. And its ability to produce when we tend it and care for it um, properly is just mind blowing. And it produces enough and to spare for all of our, all of our needs. And, and I, so one, one suggestion is just, man, start growing a garden. I don't care if it's a bucket on your back patio put a tomato seed in there and watch how many tomatoes spring out of that stinking bucket. It's ridiculous. And they they taste better and they're, you know, and don't use Roundup and don't use fertilizers and, and just uh, use good soil and good soil practices and, and learn a little bit about what those good soil practices are and what makes up good soil. And look at some of the, you know, regenerative farming videos on YouTube. I think those are very instructional and enlightening. And if many of you maybe are producers of some of those videos, so I'm probably preaching somewhat to the choir here. But there's all kinds of of opportunity and benefits, both societal, communal, health, and environmental associated with just going back to tradition to traditional food growing practices. So I, I would say start start there and then you know let your mind wander into how we can begin to extend this measurement platform across a a, a wide range of of producers and start to make that available through open source communities and means like you alluded to Christoph I think you know let let it's going to take it's going to take many people with selfless to to get there and, and so certainly need everybody's involvement great advice Thanks so much. I would just say I started a bunch of seeds last year and have a much bigger garden this year, and it is not easy. It is super not fun, easy. so rewarding, and I don't regret a minute of time I spend in my garden. But, you know, you learn a lot like very quickly. Making a bunch of mistakes, figuring out what grows with what, figuring out <laughs> how to deal with certain bugs in organically friendly ways, figuring out what time you want to plant certain crops shade is huge what is your region you know and actually the usda has a lot of really good resources if you're willing to plant more than 100 of a crop extension agents might even have some funding or access to some trials you can do but it's yeah. it's amazing to see how much food can be produced from a relatively small plot of land and back 
backyard gardens sure. are not out of the questions. And if you have a neighbor who you like, just floating an idea out there, start a garden with them that spans both your lawns or yeah. find a whole collective common garden, start that. So then you can sort of share some of the less glamorous activities like weed. That's right. Well, yeah, use mulch. I guess that's the other suggestion is, hey, use use lots of mulch. It helps on the weeds and it helps on the water retention and helps in another number of ways. And you know, I live here in, in the hot valley of the sun in, in Phoenix. So right now it's it's tough we're actually getting some rain right now which is which is huge but amazing the kind of people that you'll find around you who have expertise and who have you know generational learning embedded in them that can really help with just even a little backyard garden and yeah even though i live in a very you know metropolitan area we've got a vacant lot here behind us that that we're starting a little community garden in so you know, there's all kinds of opportunities like that, and the city's going to lend the water, and you know, the the owner of the the land who owns a lot of the properties in the area is going to let us use the land. So, I mean, there's lots of opportunities for things like that to happen, and and man, the amount of food that you can grow is really is really amazing, and and more important than that, just the the learning of how to grow and how to tend and how to care for a given plot of land is maybe even more valuable than the food that it produces. So yeah, I would certainly encourage you, encourage you in that direction. Awesome. And great words to end on. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Todd. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you, Christoph. All the best. Thanks for listening to this episode of On the Climate Record. This episode was made possible with the support of Arizona State University. If you liked this episode, please share it and rate and review us in your favorite podcasting app.